This is episode 65 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll learn about the amazing life of William J. Hillier. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 65. Never fear, the Magic Detective is here. A little late, but he's <laughs> he's here. And uh, because I'm a little late, I guess I've missed all the hot news that I had for you, like uh, all the auctions that were coming up and the Magic Collector's Corner reunion and all of that. But, um, oh, there is one thing I do want to mention, and that is John Cox is now offering a weekly newsletter for his wildabouthoudini.com blog. So if you haven't already signed up, go on over to wildabouthoudini.com and sign up for that. You'll be glad you did. It's a really clever newsletter that he's put together, and uh, he always puts a bonus thing in there too, so it's really, really cool. And, and by the way, while you're signing up for things, if you haven't already joined the Magic Detective Facebook group, uh, I'd love to have you as a member, so go on over and sign up for that. Uh, I think I've only ever turned down one person, and that's because uh, they uh, looked suspiciously like a bot and not a real individual, so uh, I pretty much let everybody in. Uh, I did have a, a surprise contest over there on the Facebook group in April, and I expect to have another one probably uh, now that it's May. I'll probably post it this week. Um, by the way, Thank you to all the new people who have joined over there and our new listeners here to the podcast. I'm grateful to have you. Uh, we did have a winner, as I mentioned, in April um, for the contest. The question, who, uh, the question was, who is credited with creating the first small egg bag? And the answer was Herbert Albini. And the winner was Rick P. from Wichita, Kansas. And he will be receiving an authentic piece of magic memorabilia. Actually, he probably already has gotten it by now. Uh, so uh, watch for the May History Contest, which I think I'll post this week over on the Facebook group. And if you win, you get a, an authentic piece of magic memorabilia. And now, let's get right into the feature. William John Hillier was born in Oxford, England, November 27, 1876. He's not to be confused with John Northern Hilliard, with a D, who was famous for the book Greater Magic, among other things. William J. Hillier's first exposure to magic was via the pages of Charles Dickens' All the Year Round. This was a weekly British uh, literary periodical owned and published by Charles Dickens. And he would often write of the exploits of magicians and his own magical exploits, as he was an amateur conjurer. In addition, William's father told him about the wonderful theater known as Egyptian Hall and the fabulous conjurers there. And it's safe to say that young Hillier was obsessed with magic. He devoured the books of the time. He purchased magic props when he was able and saw various magicians, including the celebrated Dr. Lynn of Palagenesia fame. Despite his father wanting him to become a lawyer, young Bill Hillier wanted only to become a magician. 
Some biographies of Hillier mentioned he became interested in magic when he saw Bosco perform. Uh, he mistakenly thought this performer was the famed Bosco. However, Bartolomeo Bosco died in 1863 before Hillier was even born. The man Hillier saw was likely a good or decent copycat using Bosco's name. This is pointed out in great detail in the pages of the Conjurer's Monthly Magazine in an article by Houdini. By the way, Hillier's own audition before Masculine and Devant was less than earth-shattering. Nerves set in when he realized that the only two people that were watching were the aforementioned Masculine and Devant. Hillier dropped, knocked over, spilled, and flopped every routine in his audition. Damn those nerves. Thankfully, though, he did, uh, did not allow this one situation to destroy his resolve, and he pushed forward, practicing and rehearsing, and eventually becoming, as you will see, a very accomplished magician. Hillier, as a magician, first appeared on the December 1900 issue of Mahatma Magazine. The article mentions he is now 24, but he has nine years of experience performing before the public. Two of his specialties were shadowography and sleight of hand. And it isn't well known, but he began his performing career under the name Professor Lennox. Uh, this moniker didn't last very long, however. As the article in Mahatma reveals, Hillier got his start working with a touring vaudeville company. And after two years of touring through England, he went out and created his own touring company. He also created a show full of magic and novelty, including ventriloquism, juggling, and mentalism. But special mention has been made of his manipulative skill, specifically skill with coins. The article says he is second only to T. Nelson Downs in that area of conjuring. That's pretty high praise indeed. Uh, here's a write-up on Hillier from a leading English society paper. A young magician named Hilliar is working his way rapidly to the fore, and it suggests itself to me that in the near future he will make a stir upon the world. He is a marvelous wonder worker, and his sleight of hand is phenomenal. After witnessing his performance, one begins to doubt whether what we see is reality. Who knows whether most of the things of beauty that delight our vision are but mere illusions. After looking upon the brilliant legerdemain of this conjurer, one is so lost in amazement that one begins to doubt the reality of existence. Who knows? Perhaps it's all a sham. The longer one lives, the less certain one is of anything. Mr. Hilliar last night delighted the audience of the St. George's Hall with an exhibition that gave as much delight as it caused curiosity. A time is not far distant when this rising young prestidigitator will be sought for by the best hosts in London who would give joy to their friends. As an addition to any evening's entertainment, Professor Hilliar's services are an acquisition. We also learn here that Hillier is also representing T. Nelson Downs as manager of his magic company. And speaking of Downs, on my podcast on Tommy Downs, episode number 23, you'll hear me mention Hillier several times in relation to Downs. One of the reasons was because it was William Hillier who ghostwrote Tommy Downs' book on coin manipulation in 1901. 
With the encouragement of T. Nelson Downs, Howard Thurston made the trek to England to perform as the King of Cards, and he too became a sensation. His act consisted of card manipulations, card scaling, and a duck production. Interestingly, in the press, the emphasis was placed upon his skill at palming cards and not the magical appearance of the act. This was common for the time. Uh, there's no denying that Thurston was a skilled manipulator. And to show just how strong a card man he was, he had to eventually pull the duck production because it just seemed so out of place amongst a really strong card act. And as he had done with Tommy Downs, Hillier introduced himself to Thurston and apparently offered to Ghost write a book for him as well. Howard Thurston's Card Tricks was the name of the book. Hillier wrote the entire book, even creating material for the book as well. Several things happened in 1902. For one, William Hillier moves to the United States. Two, he writes his own book called The Modern Magician's Handbook. In March of 1902, William Hillier begins a new magical publication called The Sphinx. He chooses Harry Keller to grace the cover of the first issue. One of the most amazing things in this issue is the inclusion of the great goldfishing trick. He gives the complete history, mentioning that it was the creation of a fellow named Professor Mingus. He includes a picture of Mingus's letterhead showing the fist trick and says, the first to do the trick after Mingus were Robinson and Golden. And something I find fascinating is that he says Mingus played Tony Pastors for one week. And during that week, both Robinson and Golden saw the show. No mention is given of their getting Mingus's permission to duplicate the trick. Only that they built their own. And we can't know either way, unfortunately, but... Just as odd, after the trick appeared in the Sphinx, Mingus himself wrote two other articles about the trick for Mahatma magazine, revealing the parts of the trick that were left out in the Sphinx article. So perhaps Mingus was eager to see his trick performed by others as well. In the second issue of the magazine, we find our old friend Henry Ridgely Evans writing a column. We learned a little bit about him in episode 62 of the podcast. Strangely, however, by issue number seven, it seems Hillier was ready to move on. Issue number eight abruptly posted that Mr. Hillier is no longer connected with the Sphinx, but has kindly consented to furnish articles each month, which will be of great interest to those interested in magic. Now, what happened? One assertion was that Hillier just deserted the Sphinx, perhaps in favor of another job opportunity. From a 1905 issue of The Sphinx, we find it was largely due to the aid and advice of Mr. Harry S. Thompson, afforded M. Inez and company, that The Sphinx was kept alive after its desertion by William J. Hillier, and it was Mr. Thompson who induced Dr. Wilson to take up the editorial work. By the way, in 1905, Hillier was performing in vaudeville in the U.S. But get this, in 1902, Hillier was starting something he called Hillier's Magician's Scrapbook. He even took advanced orders on the project. And this was kind of an interesting project. It was basically a book uh, with the chapters spelled out and a single trick included in each section. However, after the single trick, there would be several blank pages. 
And I think it said that each chapter would have about 10 pages. The idea was that it would be kind of a subscription. And each month, Hillier would send you the latest tricks formatted to fit within the book. All you had to do was paste those particular pages in their um, specific spots. Eddie Dawes, in his column, A Rich Cabinet of Magical Curiosity in the Magic Circular, 1993, uncovered that Hillier only received about 10% worth of advanced orders, not near enough to proceed with the project. He waited another month with no success, so he left the Sphinx and let them know where to contact him and get refunds for the magician's scrapbook. In the January 1903 edition of The Sphinx, they mentioned that The Sphinx was never part of this project, and it was solely and completely that of Hillier's. They mentioned that he, Hillier, has mentioned in several columns that if people contact him who have paid in advance, he will return their money. His address was also given as 493 6th Avenue, New York. This next piece comes from Richard Hatch, who made me aware of it. There is a theory that the book, The Expert at the Card Table by S.W. Erdnays, was actually written by a man named Milton Franklin Andrews. This theory was held by no less than Martin Gardner, Jeff Busby, and Bart Whaley. Andrews was a gambling man, but not really a writer. He could have created the content for the book, but not likely written the book without help. They believe that Bill Hillier either edited the book or ghost wrote parts of it. And the timing was perfect for this, as it was around the exact same time that Hillier came to the United States. Richard points out that Hillier, in his last issue as editor of The Sphinx, does mention thusly, a recent book on gambling tricks has been published by S.W. Erdnays under the title The Expert at the Card Table. It contains a chapter on Ledger Domain. Richard points out that there's no mention of where to get the book or who has it for sale, but others point out that this is an indication that Hillier was involved in the writing of the book. But it is one theory of many, and we are likely to never know the truth of where that book came from. Now, in 1904, there's an interesting piece in the Sphinx. Information comes to us from the National Magical Company of Cincinnati that it's composed of William J. Hillier and Mr. C.E. Wallace of the Standard Oil Company. We learn that Mr. Hillier is on the road with the Dixie Amusement Company. Subscribers to Hillier's scrapbook may now be able to communicate with Hillier himself. So he's still, in 1904, hasn't returned all the money. Uh, my guess, though, is that he made good on all the advanced buyers over time, as a 1906 issue of The Sphinx mentions meeting Hillier in person and being quite taken with his excellent abilities in sleight of hand, and no mention is given of any negative feelings toward Hillier or towards the Hillier scrapbook. In October 1907, the Sphinx featured Hillier on the cover of the magazine. And the editor, Dr. A.M. Wilson, revealed something that always made me wonder. He revealed that when they chose someone for the cover, that person was supposed to provide a biographical sketch or write-up. And in this case, Hillier did not provide one, so his write-up was rather short. And many, many other issues 
suffer from the exact same problem. I can never figure out why they'd feature somebody on the cover and then not write very much about them. And now I see the reason is, is it was the artist's responsibility to get that information to the editor, which often they did not do. One piece of information that fits into the 1907 picture is that Hillier was preparing to take out a really big show. The show would feature illusions and escapes, and as well as mind reading and manipulative magic. He would be under the management of Samuel L. Carter of Washington, D.C. In September 1909, the Sphinx, it's reported that W.J. Hillier is now the manager of Barnum & Bailey's Sideshow. He's in charge of all business related to that side of the company. In 1912, we find Hilliard performing at the Fifth Avenue Theater. And here's a write-up from the Tennessean newspaper. Patrons of the Fifth Avenue Theater during the week have enjoyed the act of Hillier, the talkative trickster. But probably very few were aware of the act that they have witnessed the performance of a recognized authority on magic one whose reputation is worldwide. Mr. Hillier is the author of several volumes on the subject. He started the magazine known as The Sphinx, the oldest and most successful magical magazine published, and has entertained with his magic and shadows in all parts of the civilized world. In 1914, it's reported that Hillier and his wife are at the Hagenbach-Wallace Circus doing the miser's dream and a levitation. And now, before we continue, let me ask you something. Have you ever heard of Billboard magazine? Well, it's a very old periodical that is still published today. In fact, if you saw it today, you'd think, hey, it's a very modern magazine. It covers primarily the music industry. But in 1918... William Hillier was the editor of the magazine and founded a magic section called Magic and Magicians in the Billboard magazine. Back then, the periodical was devoted to the theatrical world because that was, <laughs> frankly, all there was. The fact that magic was thought of so highly to have its own section is mind-boggling to me. The column featured all the popular acts of the day, along with quite a few advertisements for magicians and magic manufacturers. Hillier had his office in the billboard offices in Times Square. In 1919, William J. Hillier moves to California to open an office of Billboard magazine on the West Coast. However, in July of 1920, we learn that Hillier has retired from his job due to health. This is reported in the Magic Bulletin. But in the Sphinx, July 1920, it mentions that Hillier's retirement from Billboard, well, here's what it says, was so that he could return to the stage. And then the August edition of the Sphinx sheds a little bit more light. It says Hillier took several weeks to rest in the hills of Wisconsin before heading back on the road. I was curious as to Hillier's connection to Houdini. The bios on Houdini do not mention Hillier in any depth, or if at all. Fortunately, I learned that Hillier met Houdini when Houdini first appeared at the Alhambra in London. 
No doubt they crossed paths on the touring circuits, but in 1918, Houdini, serving as president of the Society of American Magicians, chose Hilliard to be part of the Permanent Entertainment Committee for the SAM Parent Assembly. And it's clear in the mum write-ups that Houdini is quite fond of Hillier. Now listen to what Hillier wrote about Houdini in his Billboard column. Well, here's an example. Houdini's prodigious presentation of perfect prestidigitation at the New York Hippodrome, where twice daily he causes a huge elephant to vanish in thin air in about 10 seconds, has amazed New York. When a magician can become the big feature of the Hippodrome show of wonders, and he is billed like a circus, the art is certainly on the boom. What are you going to do next, Harry? Hmm. Nice write-up. In 1921, in Hilliard's own column in The Sphinx, he writes, Don't be the least bit surprised when the announcement is made that Houdini will make a farewell tour of the world. Elephant, eagle, and all. This was 1921 that he wrote this. But, my friends, that is not all. You see, Houdini chose Big Bill Hillier, as many called him by then, to be one of the folks with whom he shared a secret code. This was revealed in the book, The Secret Life of Houdini by Bill Kalush and Larry Sloman. Well, I say first revealed because Hillier himself revealed a far richer story years after Harry died. According to The Secret Life of Houdini, Houdini himself went to visit Hillier in his office at Billboard magazine. He was delivering a gift, a gift of Roger's thesaurus, but inside was an inscription. It was the code. Houdini gave him instructions to never reveal it to anyone. Fast forward now to Houdini's death, and we find a couple weeks after his death, Hillier opens up the thesaurus to read the inscription, and the code is gone. Yeah, you heard that correctly. It had vanished off the paper. It was written in pencil, and fortunately, they could see the indentation that was left behind from the writing, uh, so they traced it over. So once again, you could see the code. But according to Hillier, the next day, it was gone again. And that's not all. Bill Hillier wrote more about Houdini in the pages of Billboard magazine from October 1933 to January 27, 1934. The article Hillier wrote was called is Harry Houdini trying to communicate with me? This was uncovered by Diego Domingo and written about by John Cox on his Houdini blog. John even has a photo of the book Houdini gave to Hillier, and you can clearly see Houdini's signature and the traced over uh, code there. He covers the whole thing, the code connection, rather extensively on wildabouthoudini.com. In January of 1921, the Sphinx reports that Hillier is about to take out a big show. The article says that it will have a $10,000 production with the great Reuben and Cherry shows next season. It goes on to say, Hillier says that this will be the most beautiful demonstration of mental and physical mysticism ever attempted under canvas. Reuben and Cherry are building Hillier, a gorgeous wagon front, which will cost over $5,000 alone, and the whole show will be constructed by Adolf Seaman. 
Mr. Hillier cannot resist the lure of the great outdoors and feels that magic, properly presented, is just as dignified under a tent as it is in a theater. Now, I've mentioned that Bill Hillier befriended Tommy Downs, Howard Thurston, and Houdini. Now, here's another big name in magic, Harry Jansen. Apparently, it was Hillier who first taught Jansen some of the rudiments of magic. And the next story comes from the pages of the Magic Circular in an article by Eddie Dawes. The date is around 1923, and Hillier had just witnessed one of Dante's shows, and he's a bit befuddled because within the show, Dante presents a trick with a burning handkerchief. The part that confused him was that Dante presented the trick using Hillier's patter, word for word. According to the article, afterwards he asks, Harry, who gave you permission to use my original patter for that handkerchief trick, and how did you get it? Where did I get it, and who gave me permission to use it? Well, that's rich. Why, Bill? You wrote it out and sold it to me for $5 in Chicago in 1902, and it's one of the most treasured possessions I always carry with me is your original in your own handwriting. And then Dante produced the original. <laughs> I could just see the look on his face at that point. <laughs> Must have been priceless. September 1927, Hillier is on the cover of the Linking Ring magazine. According to John Booth in his column in the Linking Ring, when the Great Depression began in 1929, show business felt the pinch fairly quickly. Attendance fell off and a shadow started to pass over Big Bill's life. His health had begun to fade, and it was getting more difficult to switch to more promising work. He became increasingly depressed. Big Bill Hillier committed suicide by gunshot just a few days short of his 60th birthday in Cincinnati, Ohio. Now listen to this. This is a write-up that appeared in The Sphinx by Bill Bland, the Australian illusionist, years before when he visited Hillier in his offices in New York. He gives a brief overview of his life and then ends with this. When the time comes that Mr. Hillier has to retire from business worries, he can lay his pen aside and say, I have done my duty and fought fearlessly for the betterment of magic. This sounds like a person with a life well-lived and a lot of accomplishments to look back upon, but due to depression and health issues, none of that mattered. In the December 1936 issue of Genie magazine, William Larson Sr. writes, I wish to record a strange thing. In going through the Houdini files at Payson Avenue, I ran across letters from Hillier's father in England, to Houdini. I laid those letters to one side and told Mrs. Houdini I was going to send them to Bill, who would treasure them. The next morning, I learned of Bill's death at his own hand. I've placed the letters back into the file. A showman knows when an act is finished. It takes nerve to ring down one's own curtain, but I know Bill Hillier was a showman. William J. Hillier, known as the talkative trickster and Big Bill, was interred at Rose Hill Cemetery and Mausoleum in Chicago, Illinois.
Now, I have to say, his death fascinates me. From every account, he was a very jovial, outgoing, happy man. He was one of those people, as I've mentioned, that when you met him, you'd never forget him. And yet, here he was. He took his own life. And when I read this, this came as a big shock to me. I did not know this. Um, And it brings to mind Daryl Easton, whose suicide not all that long ago at the Magic Castle was, frankly, beyond shocking. And I I didn't know him either. Uh, I had met uh, Daryl at a lecture and found him to be, gosh, the friendliest of friendly people. His onstage persona was such that you couldn't help but like him. He seemed to be, the, you know, he's probably the life of the party, and yet apparently depression plagued him as well. What takes a person from happy and seemingly, I don't know, seemingly to be pleased with life, then all of a sudden they go to a place of no hope and, and the only solution is suicide. Grief and despair, suicide are terrible things. I mean, one suicide is one too many. And there have been, gosh, there have been so many in our industry. Even in show business as a whole, oh my gosh, the numbers are staggering. One of my favorite comedians, Richard Jenny, killed himself back in 2007. I mean, he was just a incredibly funny guy, and what a tragic loss. Speaking of that, Robin Williams, I mean, come on. You don't get much funnier than Robin Williams, and yet he took his own life. Uh, poet Sylvia Plath committed suicide. Ernest Hemingway, the famous author, committed suicide. Pioneering mentalist Theodore Anneman killed himself. These are famous people who have everything going for them, but they're really no more special than anyone else that you might know that has killed themselves. They all suffer from that same mysterious thing that makes misery so overwhelming that the only solution is to end it all. I have friends who have attempted suicide. Thankfully, uh, they're all still with us today. However, my great uncle, who from all accounts was a happy and very sociable person, one day decided he uh, he was of no more use to anyone because his parents had recently passed. He just felt like he was no longer needed. He had no wife. He didn't have any kids. And, uh, and he was getting older. And he didn't want to be a burden to people. So what did he do? He shot himself. I never knew the man. He died long before I was born. Yet when I read this, I mean, his death just really bothered me. And all I can say is this. If you're out there, and you're suffering from depression or suicidal thoughts, reach out to people, please. Talk to somebody. Find a reason to hang on. My friends, if you know someone who is suffering or you suspect that they're suffering, please, please reach out to them. You'll never know what the words, hey, I just called to check on you because I was thinking of you. You never know what that's going to mean to someone who's suffering. I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but I just that whole thing just oh, just grabbed at my heart when I read that about Hillier. Mm. Big special thanks to Richard Hatch, who shared his information on Hillier and Erdney's connection, and to John Cox and Diego Domingo for the Houdini Code info, uh, and also Ask Alexander and Eddie Dawes, who did a bunch of biographical work, some I found on my own, and some I would never have found without his writings. I'm already working on episode 66, so I hope to have it uh, out sooner rather than later. 
And I believe the next episode will be especially interesting to Houdini buffs. That's all I'm going to say. And I might change my mind. (laughs) So there you go. Uh, And by the way, I do apologize for how long it took me to get this episode out. Uh, Sometimes I just get so bogged down with information, I forget that I'm not writing a book, but rather a podcast episode. And then I have to go back and edit out so much stuff. And... uh, that's what happened here. I just, I, there was so much information. I'm like, this is hours of, of, of Hillier stories. And I've got to pull some of this out and uh, get it down to a reasonable, listenable uh, uh, time. So that's what I did. So, hey, my friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you like the episode, please be sure to like it in whatever way your podcasting provider will allow. And if you're so inclined and would like to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. If you know of anyone who would be interested in Magic History Podcast, please pass the word. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well and be safe.